You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who and his wife, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm JR. And we did have one single email in response to our um, What the Fans Want episode. The fans don't want to send us emails, (laughs) obviously. Well, I can only guess that we got it so absolutely right, nobody had anything to say. What did we say? Yeah. Or else we got it so it's absolutely wrong that nobody could be bothered. My, I've got a rustly coat on. I suddenly realised it's so blinking cold. Not necessarily cold in your house, Matt. It's I'm cold. Just, I'm still cold from outside, but now I'm reacclimatising. Oh, okay. I just did a little edit here. Okay. Yeah, you know about me and editing. <laughs> you noisy git. Dear Blue Boxers, you asked, what do fans want in your last podcast? I have pretty clear memories of the new series coming back. And I was pretty clear about what I wanted, so here goes. I wanted everybody to love it again. When I was very young, everybody loved Doctor Who. We talked about it in the playground. It was firmly set in the national consciousness and was, in a very small way, a part of my life. By the time I was ten, this had died. Colin Baker became my doctor and the world seemed to turn against it. When Russell T Davis brought it back, I wanted the world to love it again. I watched Rose at my friend's house. They hadn't really seen the classic series and their response was it was okay. But I saw the potential. It was fresh and different and did not wallow in the past. When the Slovene turned up, I watched it for what it was, something new and daft. It just continued to get better. Fast forward to Stephen Moffat. I got what my inner fanboy wanted, layers of continuity, references to the past and an intelligent show. But even, but even I started to tail off. Continuity makes for hard viewing. You have to invest so much. I want the layman to talk about it, so I can secretly know so much more about the show, but don't need to defend it. I want kids to find it cool, and families to tune in for the kids, even though they like it really. As a man in my 40s, Doctor Who isn't for me, and nor should it be. It should be for the current society. I am happy to watch it and remember the past as long as it stays firm in the public perception. Keep up the good work. You are by far my favourite podcast, so don't go changing. (laughs) And that's from James Wielden, who does his own podcast called The Movie Lighthouse, where once a month they get together and review a movie. What sort of movie? Well, they choose a year. Yes. And then there's four of them on the podcast. They choose a year and then they do an edit where they go to Wikipedia and look at what films came out that year. Okay. Their only um, <clears throat> rule is that it has to be a sort of genre movie. Okay. But they're quite wide in that, I think. Okay. And then three of them come back and uh, come up with a suggestion. And the fourth person, the person who chose the year, who chooses the year out of a hat, by the way, okay. then has to choose which of the three suggestions is the one they review next. And then they'll go away and watch it and come back the following month and talk about it. Cool. Yeah, they've done, they've only done three episodes so far. They're about to do their fourth. But Can you remember what films? Uh, Fahrenheit 451 okay. is one of the three films. Um, Crash. Fahrenheit, that was quite, uh, yes. Which version? I think, I'm guessing it must be the Cronenberg. I've not listened to that episode yet, but I'm okay. guessing it must be the Cronenberg because that's the genre one, yeah. right? yeah. I can't, for the life of me, think what was the episode in between. Ah, uh, it's gone. Okay. Uh, but next time they've got, oh god, I can't remember what it's called. Some ancient um, slasher pick, I think, okay. basically, Feast of Blood or something. It's one of the really early ones from before the slasher picks came a thing. Right. It's a Herschel Gordon Lewis one. Okay. So it's like a really early gore fest type right. thing. Right. Mm. <clears throat> They could have had, um, it was from 1963, so they could have had the Day of the Triffids, and I cursed them when they didn't pick that, because <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd have enjoyed the hell out of that podcast. It ain't a great movie, but it would have been fun to talk about. Maybe we should do that ourselves at some point. Um, 
<clears throat> I agree with what he said. Well, to the first bit of what he said. I think the excitement of the new series was, for me, was less was less what was on screen and more the sudden realisation that people were liking it mm-hmm. and suddenly realising <laughs> that people were having conversations. And when I went out on Halloween that year, in 2005, children were de- dressed as gas mask children. Yeah, yeah. And I suddenly thought, well, this is, so this is what I haven't had since, well, my whole life, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember the... You know, my first memory is from 1979, so I've never known Doctor Who not to be a sort of niche thing you don't talk about at school. So that was that was really cool. Yeah, of course, that's what we grew up with. Yeah. Children talking about Doctor Who at school. Yeah. But these, it's like you say, it's a very small group of friends who like Doctor Who at school. Yes. It's only about three or four of us, yeah. if that. But now, even though people will say this, and it's one of these sort of, my friends agree with me, when I say, and all my experience tells me that kids have stopped watching with Stephen Moffat and people don't talk about Doctor Who anymore with Stephen Moffat. But where I work, you know, the kind of people I work with are not the kind of people you'd expect to be Doctor Who nerds, inverted commas. Mm. And yet, they'll come up to me and talk about it. Mm. So they're obviously watching it, and they're watching it with their kids. You know, one of them has a five-year-old who he, on the last episode of the last series, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but on the last episode of the last series, he was out on the night it was on. He was in the habit of um, recording them so that he could watch them first before he showed it to his kid and then watching it with the kid after school on a Monday. So the first day back from on school, the kid had a treat to look forward to at the end of the day. But on the last episode of the last series... He was away for the weekend. So when he came home on Sunday night, he says to the kid, oh, school tomorrow, and then we'll be able to watch the last episode of Doctor Who afterwards. Mm. And the kid says to him, oh, I already watched it, Dad. You weren't here. So I just got the tablet out and looked it up and watched it. Mm. So that's like a five-year-old kid, five or six, who's actually looking Doctor Who up Mm. on his tablet, Mm. on the iPlayer. I guess it's a deception because... When it first came back, it was new and the popularity was exciting. Then it became phenomenally popular. Yeah. And it reached a peak and now it's really popular. But it's still popular, but it's <clears> just, <throat> it's never going to have that peak. You can't sustain that kind of, it, that kind of mid-David Tennant peak. No. It's I, just... Well, I've yeah. said it before, the Donner year was Doctor Who's Who Shot JR. Yeah. And that is a level of water coolerness. Mm. That you only get once in a series you, lifetime. And if you compare constantly compare the next episode to that that cliffhanger yeah. in the end of whatever Stolen Earth. Stolen Earth. Yeah, yeah. Then you're never going to be happy. You're no, always you're always going to be on a hide into yeah. nothing. Yeah. So what you should do is take something else as the yardstick and say, Right, that was the peak in one direction, but as long as we're in the ballpark, mm. it's not an issue. Yeah. Doc, you know, Doctor Who is... And what the other thing he brings up is continuity. Mm. And I, I mentioned this briefly in passing last time, and when we do the RTD story arc thing, you've got the continuity of Rose across all four series. In the third series, she's not there, but she's talked about. In the fourth series, she turns up again. You've got the continuity of Dalek Khan mm. across, essentially, three of the four series out of a story that starts halfway through the first series. There's continuity across all of it. The thing they question about Stephen Moffat is that he refers continuity back. Mm. But I don't think anybody looked at World Enough and Time and said this episode is not a success because of the continuity. Mm. So Stephen Moffat has this thing of using things from the past but not in a way that addresses the past, in a way that takes that thing and says, right, what can we do with that thing now? So with the Mondasian Cybermen, it wasn't about the 10th planet in the way that Attack of the Cybermen had been about the 10th planet. Mm. Attack of the Cybermen was there to address a continuity issue. Stephen Moffat was just using those Cybermen to tell his own story. In The Magician's Apprentice, Stephen Moffat's using Davros, not in a sequel to Genesis of the Daleks, not in a sequel to Journey's End, 
but he's using Davros in order to tell a story about a Kondrick. Mm. So he's using elements of the past rather than going back and addressing the continuity of the past. Mm. Now, I don't know whether James meant the continuity of the current day, i.e. the silence turning up across two years and more, but... That doesn't thing. take away the ability for people to just dip in and out, though. And they will do. And they yeah. Will, they, will, they will enjoy it at face value, surely. But I don't think people do dip in and out. You look... I mean, obviously some people dip in and out, but if you look at the viewing figures, across the course of a year, mm. it'll be half a million up or half a million down of seven and a half million or whatever. Mm. That essentially means that seven and a half million people are watching it every week, and those are the people you make it for. Because those people, they might not rewatch the episode before the next one comes on. They might not buy the box set on DVD or Blu-ray, whatever. But they are watching it every single week and they're able to retain that information. And as long as you, if you bring something back from last year, as long as you remind them what that thing is, they're going to remember it and know what relevance it has. And that's how almost every successful modern television series works. Exactly. Now, I can't yeah. think of a television series off the top of my head that's now an anthology series that resets. They all have some sort of some sort of passage that these. I rewatched apart the from your obvious Black Mirror. Yeah, yeah. But well, that is an anthology. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's part, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But nothing with a recurring cast that that resets. So mm. even Star Trek now. No, no. That's successful because it's kind of telling these these mm. sorts of this overall arc. Mm. And You've these got arcs it's the box set. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. Society, isn't it? It's, um, yeah. yeah. Binge-watching. Yeah, Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, Battlestar Galactica, which I'm halfway through again. Wow, um, great series. And um, Yeah, they those American ones tell continuing stories, mm. which sort of have a story of the week, but particularly, say, Battlestar Galactica, the story of the week's never resolved. It's a mm. part of a bigger story, yeah. but it tells the story of a certain plot well, you point can tell for that the week. Battlestar Galactica is successful because you have two part two part stories, but you don't really notice that they're two part stories. They're sort of blended in yeah, to, yeah. to the series as a whole. Well and the only reason probably you're aware of this, but the listeners might not be, the only reason they're two part stories is generally because they take a break for six weeks across Christmas yeah. and they'd end on a cliffhanger and start on the resolution to the cliffhanger yeah. and that would be a, a two part story. Yes. And yeah. That's where that's where those were. Uh, Shall we talk about what we came to talk yes, about? Yeah. Um, the Doctor's Wife. That's where we've got to in our Stephen Moffat things we missed rewatch. Um, same question I always start with. Uh, what did you think of it when you first saw it? And how long is it before this time since you last saw it, Matt? Um, when I first saw it, I was confused by it, I think. I liked bits of it, but I thought the whole thing jarred tonally with everything else. Ah, I put that enough. down to Neil Gaiman, and I was confused. Um, and the last time I watched it before this time was about a month ago. Oh, okay. So I watched it quite recently. And you've just watched um, it again. I just watched it again. <laughs> um, and I've, I enjoy it a lot a lot more, I think, because the subsequent, well, we'll that, subsequent yeah. episodes have, have sort of and sort of eased the transition for me. Simon? Uh, I watched it on transmission, then I watched it a few weeks later after that, <clears throat> and then I watched it about two weeks ago, so I haven't watched it again. Since two weeks ago. Because it's still quite fresh. But prior to two weeks ago, you hadn't watched it uh, since yeah. about when it was on. And no, what did you think of it when I it first was it. on? Yeah. yeah, really loved it, and then watched it again because I loved it. Uh, yeah. Okay, and I loved it the first time, and the last time I watched it, probably around about the anniversary, something like that, I think. And I watched it again yesterday, which must have been about the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. So, Neil Gaiman, you're right. Stephen Moffat had this thing. Russell T. Davis had been about the big guest stars. And Simon Callow was the first name to be in Russell T. Davis' Doctor Who, although you'd had um, Zoe Wanamaker and people like that. So Simon Callow certainly wasn't the first known person, but he was the first person who was advertised as the big guest star. And, of course, this reached its apex with Kylie Minogue. Mm -hmm. But then even after that, you've got people like David Morrissey, who's a huge star, really. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, he gets drawn into The Walking Dead as a big-name guest, doesn't mm-hmm. he? Which shows you how big a name he is. Russell T. Davis was about big guest star actors. Then when Stephen Moffat came along, Series 5 wasn't about the big guest star actors, although you did have some great actors in it, like Bill Patterson and Ian McNeese in the Dalek story. Mm-hmm. But you had Simon Nye, whose name may not have been known, but who was the guy who had done Men Behaving Badly. Mm-hmm. You had uh, Richard Curtis, who I think most people would know the name of, but if they don't, they'd certainly know what he's done. Yeah. Vicar of Dibley and Blackadder on TV. And let's not forget in the movies, yeah. Four Weddings and a Funeral. And, yeah. yeah. Some huge, huge, huge movies. So Richard Curtis was a massive name. Mm-hmm. And Neil Gaiman is also a massive name in sort of fantasy literature and uh, graphic novels and the like. And some pretty big films and TV programs had been made of his work. And Neil Gaiman was supposed to be episode 11 in series 5, right after Richard Curtis, just a couple of weeks after Simon Nye, and in the spot that eventually would go to the lodger. Right. So... The gaming episode was looking like it was going to be a bit too expensive to do before the end of Series 5. And they couldn't quite nail the script and get it to where they wanted to be. So they bumped it back into Series 6. That, all of which is, by the way, just as a sort of prologue to talking about where it sits in Series 6. Because really, it's a Series 5 story. And that kind of makes it... So I said I found it jarring tonally. And it does. It sits on its own... And I think that's one of the reasons I like it now, that it sort of stands alone. But it's one of the reasons why I was confused when it was first on. I have to stop and think which series it's in. Yeah. Mm. It does have one massive, massive continuity element, Mm. which is the old Time Lords. And when I say that's massive continuity element, I'm not talking about the box from the War Games. Which is, you know, a nice thing to be in there. Yes. But the fact that you're talking about the Time War. Yes. Which is, I think, the first time in the 11th Doctor's tenure tenure, that there's really a story that has anything to do with the Time War. The first time in... Yeah, the first time in Matt Smith. Yeah. I think. I can't think of any that have anything to do with the Time War prior to that. So, although, but in terms of the localized continuity, the whole sort of oh, it's self-contained at the beginning of this. It's the only reference to that is the very slightly clunky dialogue where Rory and Amy go off to one side and say, "You're oh, still yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. about how the doctors died, and we can't tell him about it." And yeah, yes, yeah. I am still thinking about that. Should we get on with this adventure? Yes, okay. <laughs> Actually, I think that comes. Does that not come right at the end? No, it comes at the beginning. Oh, does it? Yeah, right, yeah fair enough. Yeah, right at the beginning. Yeah, there's a, but but that's fine. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't bother me. I suspect that was probably filmed separately from the rest of the. Or maybe it wasn't, but it was obviously an ad. I doubt it was Neil Gaiman no. scripted. Put it that way, <laughs> as a lot of this possibly wasn't Neil Gaiman scripted. Well, okay. Seeing as you've brought it up, yeah, I've got a quote from Neil Gaiman on the very week of the Doctor's wife's broadcast, which is did, worth. Did he send you a text? No, he put this oh. up on his blog. Oh, okay. I mean, he put a long blog post about the Doctor's wife, but he included this, which is... And so I copied it so we'd have the actual quote before we go into it. He says... He's saying thank you to a lot of people, the people who are in it, the people who made it. He's saying, you know, as much as it's credits due to me, because he's writing this after the episode's gone out, so it's obviously got a lot of um, good notices on social media and everything. He also says, credit goes most of all to the Ood father, Stephen Moffat, who encouraged me in my madness, rescued me when I told him I'd written too many drafts and couldn't do it again, gave the script several of its best lines, and who even rapidly rewrote a couple of scenes at the last minute when locations vanished due to budget. Of course, the story elsewhere on the internet is that the Doctor's wife is as much Stephen Moffat as it is Neil Gaiman. It feels, Which, Neil, it feels Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a very Neil Gaiman story. And uncle and aunt. 
for example, and House yeah. are all really Neil Gaiman I mean, even, things. Even if the dialogue has been rewritten by Stephen Moffat to make it Stephen Moffat-y, the attractive things about the story are the Neil Gaiman-y bits, the kind of the details of it, the sort of story, the background story of it. I can imagine that what possibly happened is that... Because I don't think Stephen Moffat ever says to a writer, go off and write a story without telling them what to write about. So I can imagine the conversation across months or whatever would be along these lines. They bump into each other. Stephen Moffat says, would you like to write a Doctor Who story? Neil Gaiman says, hell yeah. Stephen Moffat goes away, thinks about it, says, do you know what would be kind of Neil Gaiman-y? but that is also something that I'd want in my series and that would therefore be the perfect thing for me to ask Neil Gaiman to write. What if the TARDIS gets downloaded into a woman's body and the Doctor actually gets to talk to the TARDIS? So I can imagine that the very basic premise probably came from Stephen Moffat, but because he knew that Neil Gaiman was going to write an episode. I'm fairly (laughs) sure I've seen an interview where... That was the initial idea. Neil Gaiman went to Stephen Moffat. Oh, really? Oh, that's it, fair enough. I think so. Yeah. That may be my memory tricky. Because it's so separate. Because it's, it's so individual an idea. Yeah. That, I mean, it could. Well, but it's not a million. That, it could be Stephen Moffat, but mm. I think it's more likely to be Neil Gaiman. Oh, maybe. It's so, such a Neil Gaiman idea. Or they just but, sat down and have a conversation. But where you'll never know. Who well, yeah, know. yeah. But that idea is very mm. along I, the lines think of was, a lot of other stuff that Stephen mm. Moffat does throughout his entire yeah. time. I think it was literally that pure. It was just that idea of this. Yeah. Well, maybe Gaiman said, mm. right, this is what I'd like to do. And Stephen Moffat said, yeah, well, that fits perfectly been, with yeah. how I do things. Yeah. So, I've been yeah. reading, reading Sandman for the first time, um, which well, is... Cor- I was just going to say, Coraline is about... A consciousness getting downloaded into a different body, isn't mm. it? Right. If I remember yeah. rightly. But there's yeah. lots of Sandman in, in, there, this, yeah. in this story as well. Yeah, so the whole aunt enough. and uncle thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind yeah, of abstracted. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's... But that's what, that's what I found disconcerting because I've seen other things based on Neil Gaiman's work and I've never been entirely comfortable to start with, with them. I've always had to sort of tune myself in and it's always taken me a bit of a... Bit of a time, so American Gods took me a while to to get into. The only Luc- one I... Lucifer took me. A... Yeah. I, well, I don't actually like Lucifer that much. Coraline, I think that works really well. I haven't seen Coraline. But I've it's... seen Stardust. No, I like Stardust. Yeah. I think Coraline's the one that works best of the ones well, I've seen. I'm actually a bigger fan of the man and his work, if I'm honest. Mm, yeah, I love hearing him talk. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. I actually seek out podcasts with him being interviewed. Uh, right. and, uh, yeah, it's, it's lovely. Uh, speaking of which, Stephen Moffat was on Room 101 this week. Was <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah, speaking of hearing people talk about things. It's very, very odd thing for him to decide. I know. To do, it's like, what? He hates that sort of. Well, from what he said, <laughs> he hates sitting in front of an audience and trying to make them laugh. I think but, he's probably chilled. Well, yeah, yeah, I think since. You know, he did yeah, his last work on Doctor Who. It's mm. like he's obviously not sort of completely on holiday because yeah, yeah. he's setting things up and writing things and Gradually. doing things. Mm. But he's not currently under any hideous deadlines. It's that thing has been yeah. for the last eight years. Mm. When the deadlines lift, you just kind of yeah. So you like, your arms out. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. I, <laughs> uh, don't stuff. think you'll go quite celebrity that. Celebrity, Big Brother. Oh, get, get on the program where you get to slag things off. It's brilliant, surely. But then, well, this is relevant because anybody who didn't know he was on, you've still got about three weeks from when this podcast goes out to find it on the iPlayer. I'm amazed my wife hasn't told me she watches it religiously. Oh, really? Mm. Uh, Perhaps she missed that one. Perhaps Mm. she, yeah. But we're in the middle of the same. uh, Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman. So I imagine... Sorry, go Go on. on. It's all right. I think, like most comic book writers... It's, he he makes me think a bit like Douglas Adams, a bit of Douglas Adams, because I've never gotten. I like the idea of Douglas Adams mm. more than I like. I've yeah. never liked the the Hitchhikers books. The obviously they're meant to be a radio play. I like the Dirk Gently books more than the Hitchhikers books. I agree. Um, yeah. And with Neil Gaiman, I find it a bit hit and miss. Mm. Good Omens is brilliant, mm. but then I think he was tempered by. Um, Died Terry Pratchett, who is this great 
I mean, it really is a good mm. novelist, mm. I think. Maybe Neil Gaiman and Douglas Adams are at their best or at their least idiosyncratic when they're working for or with other people. Yeah, mm. yeah like Stephen mm. Moffat. Yeah. So in actual fact, that's a perfect partnership. So from judging by what he says, things like, I didn't get you where you... You'd never got me where I wanted to go. I got you where you needed to go. Mm. Presumably that would be a Stephen Moffat line. Yeah. Because although Gaiman claimed to be a fan, I don't know how big a fan he would or could be, probably is a big fan, but that mm. sounds like something that Stephen Moffat would have brought to the script. Mm. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think the show is ever... I don't know. can't speak for him, but I got the impression, again, from hearing interviews with him that it, it was a series he'd grown up with. He was always aware of. Yeah, It yeah. wasn't at the forefront of his consciousness. Yeah. To the point where he was watching it every week or anything like that. He was just very aware of the series. And it's he's very big on the history and the mythology of things. Obviously, he's, I, I keep meaning to read his book on Norse mythology. So he's, he's big on that and, and the mythos yes. of things, which I think feeds directly into that idea of getting the TARDIS's consciousness and going back. And But that's also an Alan Moore thing. Because mm. if you look at the work Alan Moore did for Doctor Who, that's very much about the history. He's obsessed with the history of... So Alan Moore never strikes me as a, as a massive fan of Doctor Who. He always talks about... The first, him not, not watching it since the first Doctor Regenerated. But if you look at the comic strips, they're so continuity. Mm. I mean, he's talking about, I think it's Omega that he, mm. he delves into the backstory of yeah. in the Time Lords. When was he and doing so, the comic strips? Oh, was it early, did, early days yeah, of the yeah. weekly, wasn't yeah. it? 79? Oh, this is, we're this, talking about um, Legion 70s, of... Early 80s. Mm. Iron Legion, Legion and stuff. Except that wasn't Alan Moore. No, but Dark, Dark Moon Rising and things like that, isn't it? It's... <sighs> Something like that. I'm not sure he ever did one with the Doctor in it. I think he did the sort of the side strips. He did one with an Auton, mm. I think. Oh right, those. Um, yeah, okay. But but they were very. They fed a lot on the continuity of Doctor Who. They were fun mm. those side yeah, strips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember those. Um, the Doctor's wife then. So, it going back to what I said about the continuity. It's all of a sudden about the Time War. But I think this is an episode where you learn a bit about Matt Smith's Doctor. And I think this might have fit rather nicely into Series 5 because what happens in this episode is you suddenly get something thrust under the 11th Doctor's nose where he gets excited at the possibility that his species might have survived. Mm. And that's like a really big carrot but when you shove a really big carrot under somebody's nose, that's when you get to judge their personality because somebody like, say, for example, the ninth Doctor or the twelfth Doctor would have looked at the carrot and said, right, what's the trick? What's the ruse? What are you trying to pull with this carrot? Whereas the eleventh Doctor grabs the carrot and goes running in and suddenly finds himself in a trap. Mm. So the carrot's a trap. Mm. But this is what I mean. You discover something about the 11th Doctor's character in that he runs into danger without even contemplating that it might be a trap. Even other Doctors that would have run in would have said, "Okay, it might be a trap, I'll go in and find out. The 11th Doctor, completely oblivious to the fact it might be a trap, just wants to find out, totally single-minded, totally focused on that one thing. He's a bit... A bit like the fifth Doctor, only with more personality. <laughs> because the fifth Doctor, the whole point of the fifth Doctor, and maybe the second Doctor as well, is they just get into scrapes. They just do something, and everything gets very, very complicated, and it all falls apart around them. So it's disaster management. Although I think the fifth Doctor is more suspicious. It's just the stories. Mm, yeah. The stories written for the fifth Doctor aren't written for the fifth Doctor, so it's hard to tell, really. Well, at least for that first year or so. Yeah. And then Eric Saywood was writing stories where the Doctor was the least of his concerns, really, I guess. Um, the other thing I was going to say is after that, he goes into this trap without even thinking about it. But then the rug gets pulled, mm-hmm. to mix my metaphor now, having talked about a carrot. Yes. And it, it in that sense, it kind of works a bit like Series 5 
in a nutshell, in the same way I think Mummy on the Orient Express is like the whole of Series 8, squeezed into one episode. Mm-hmm. This, Series 5 is about the cracks, but the cracks are caused by the TARDIS, which is caused by the TARDIS exploding. So therefore, the cracks are a Time Lord thing. That Time Lord being the Doctor and his TARDIS. And so the 11th Doctor spends the first half of Series 5 running around, getting into scrapes. And then you get the death of Rory, and then things start getting serious, and then you get to the end of the series, and when he discovers it's the TARDIS at the end of Cold Blood, when he pulls the um, pull-to-open sign out through the crack, that's when the Doctor is like, whoa, what really is going on here? And in The Doctor's Wife, you kind of get the same thing, sort of from a completely different angle. But first of all, it's there's the carrot, there's the Time Lord's, and then it discovers that something's eating the Time Lords, which kind of works in the same way as the Doctor discovering that the TARDIS is responsible for the cracks. Mm. It and works in that way. And it also has a very similar... So the way they get into the... the um, the, the, uh, the the second control room by remembering images. Yes. The red and the petrichor. And yeah. that's very similar to the climax that Amy's remembering. Remembers the Doctor and brings him back. Something blue. Yeah. Because the theme for Series yeah. 5 was memory. Mm-hmm. And yes. that's, and so you get episodes like Amy's Choice, which is all I, about... I have one bugbear that I've always had with this. So the TARDIS, or Idris, teases the Doctor for always pushing the door instead of pulling it because yeah. it says pull to open. But that sign is on the sign. It's pull that... Yeah, to pull the little door for the phone. phone. Yeah, yeah. It's not the whole door itself. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's just wrong. (laughs) I mean, Um, yes, the doors would probably normally open on a police box. On a police box, they'd have to open outwards because otherwise. But that sign isn't referring to the doors; it's referring to the hatch that the phone is in. But it still works as a joke. It still works as as a a joke. Except even at the time, I thought, well, that's funny, but it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. In fact, I think I thought that as well the mm. first time I saw it. Yeah. I think that's a that's a big thing, though. I think with the Eleventh Doctor is that the or maybe with the Moffat era is is the relationship between the Doctor and TARDIS. I that's what think... I mean. That's why I thought maybe the idea would come from Moffat because there is a lot of that mm. stuff across the there whole is, era. Yeah, even the Eleventh Hour is all seeded in that, isn't it? When you've got the the TARDIS baking creating well, something course, new. And series says, what have you got for me this time. Yeah, yeah. Series five is all about what happens when the TARDIS mm. blows up and how the TARDIS is also what's used to resolve it. I think the the idea that that is very Moffaty, but the idea of putting the TARDIS into a woman like oh yeah, Idris it's like in Coraline. Yeah, so yeah. Mm. that's why I think. When you're trying to play the game of who wrote what in the episode, yeah, yeah. there would be so many drafts and so much confusion. And Neil Gaiman and Stephen Moffat are obviously very similar imaginations. Yeah, yeah. It's almost an impossible... Oh, I was just uh, trying to suggest how it might have come about. Yeah. The only way you would... Well, even if you look at Nightmare in Silver, you just um, and try to sort of extrapolate... Well, I think that, Nightmare is... Yeah. More, that just complicates things more. Well, Series 7B was the year when Stephen Moffat was struggling with the 50th stuff, mm. and it's on record now that he rewrote less in 7B than he had yeah. been ordinarily. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't doing final drafts on some of the stories in 7B, and final draft is maybe what Nightmare and Silver needed. Mm. Mm. Without going too off-subject, what do you think the element in Nightmare and Silver is that is the gaming element? The whole thing. Mm. I think it's all Gaiman. I think that's the difference. I think this is Gaiman and Moffat, and I think Nightmare and Silver is Gaiman, and I think Moffat pulls this into Doctor Who, and nobody's there to pull Nightmare and Silver into Doctor Who, and that's why it doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. I think if you're a big Neil Gaiman fan, you could probably really enjoy Nightmare and Silver. It was, it was quite popular, wasn't it? I think it really works on mm. one level, mm. but I think it really doesn't work as a 45-minute episode of Doctor Who, mm. and that's where the trouble is. I can't remember it. I yeah. need to rewatch it at some point. It's got some great ideas, just like this. It's got, it's got good ideas. I seem to remember that the, the fast Cybermen didn't work, but that's not a script thing. They just didn't work in the direction. Well, I think the Cybermen are the thing in that story that doesn't work, but it's mm. the mm. circus stuff and the yeah, characters yeah. and all those things that are so gamey and that do. Mm. Mm. I think the mistake in that story then perhaps, is to have the Cybermen as the enemy. 
Possibly the perhaps, children. Yeah, perhaps it would. Uh, well, that's a casting thing. Yeah, and it's amazing. Throughout three years with Matt Smith and three more with Peter Capaldi, the children in every single story have always been brilliant, it's, apart from that one. Yeah, yeah. If 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 there's any doctor who works so well with children, children as Matt Smith. Hmm. Well, both of them, Capaldi as well. Yeah. Both of them do, yeah. Mm. But they both really do. I mean, we knew that from, with Matt Smith right from the start because mm. he's opening mm. scene essentially yeah, is with yeah. little Amelia, isn't Stunning. it? Um, about the story, then. Oh, voice of House. Ah, mm. oh, Blankton's Michael name, Sheen. Michael Sheen. Unrecognizable, actually. Watching it yesterday, I was thinking mm. I knew it was Michael Sheen when I first watched it, so I was listening out for him and thinking that's Michael Sheen. Mm. But then I'm watching it yesterday and thinking, if you didn't know, you wouldn't recognize him. I don't think. No, he's got that slight Welsh intonation. Maybe, but yeah, just. But... but yeah, it's it's one of those slightly because he's such a he's such a visual, a visual actor. I felt a little bit disappointed, like I did when Ian McKellen was in Doctor Who, in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and you heard his voice. I want, I'd actually quite like to see Ian McKellen actually be in Doctor Who and Michael Sheen be in Doctor Who. Well, this is the thing, and I've said this before, you know, you write a story and then you go out to the casting director and he goes out to the agents and he says, I need somebody in for an hour to do voices for Doctor Who, have you got some, as big a name as possible, who do mm. it for the money, yeah. have you got somebody you'd like to do Doctor Who and has a spare hour on Wednesday? You know, so yeah. they'll say, you know, if you ask Ian McKellen for three weeks to do Doctor Who, he'll say, well, no, I'm he'll off do, doing Lord of the Rings. No, he'd say, he'd probably but, say yes. I mean, remember, he's in that sitcom with oh, okay. Terry Jacobi. All right. So, but that was, the sitcom, yeah, yeah. that was the sitcom they wanted to do, though, yes, wasn't it? yeah. But, but you, yeah, my point yeah. is, you go to a huge name like Ian McKellen mm, or yeah. like Michael Sheen, mm. who does, who both do big movies, mm. and you say, right, any chance you could do an hour at Doctor Who? And they go, yeah, sure, why yeah, not? Yeah. So when fans then react and say, you've got Michael Sheen and that's all you've got him to do, no, it's because <laughs> yeah. that's all they needed doing yeah. that yeah, they got someone, Michael can, Sheen. Can I, can I do a half an hour interview or can I? Can you give a minute soundbite? They're going to say the soundbite. In, in fact, so. you're probably right because when they did get Stephen Burkoff to do an actual on-screen, it failed completely. I mean, it was just... Well, he messed yeah. it up. Yeah. And they had to cut around the fact that he messed it up. Right. Apparently. Yeah, allegedly. So, yeah, but... So something like getting Michael Sheen in to mm, do, yeah. like the number of lines he had, I could imagine that that probably did literally take an hour or less. Because mm. I mean, he's there throughout the episode, but he doesn't actually get a huge amount to do. No. And an actor like Michael Sheen isn't going to take 15 takes on each of those lines, is he? No. And same goes for Ian McKellen when he did The Snowmen. Yeah. So, but is he good? Does yes. it work? Because the idea of House is a slightly odd idea, and the fact that House turns up in the TARDIS makes it an even slightly odder idea, because it's very difficult then to put your finger on who or what House is. But does Michael Sheen then sell the idea? Mm. Yeah. I I think so. I'm torn, because I'd quite like to see... Part of me would quite like to see an actual physical physical representation representation of him. But actually, part of me also quite likes the fact that you never see... A physical representation no. of mm. him, and it's just done with lighting and and creepiness. But it's not quite sold as being. He's not quite sold as being present. I think throughout the TARDIS. Yeah, yeah maybe that could have. It, it's a very similar idea to there's a character called Ego, the Living Planet, mm. which I think they've tied into Guardians of the Galaxy, Galaxy yeah. in, in, a, in some way, haven't they? Yes. But um, yeah. he's Star Lord's father. Yes, which I don't think that. Relates to the comics, but I have yeah. no idea. But no. it was very um, funny. <laughs> yeah, but that 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 isn't illustrated mm. probably as well as it could be that he is actually the planet. I think um, the thing that doesn't quite work, if anything, is Amy and Rory running around inside the TARDIS. I'm glad you said that because I think although it's got some nice moments, mm. I don't think they quite capture the sense of threat. I think it's got one. One moment too many, because what it gives is with the with the Rory dying bit, I could buy that, but then you have the Amy in the dark bit discovering the Ood, 
And I think yeah. that just felt like they'd thrown one thing, then another thing. Yeah, yeah, and as yeah. soon as you throw maybe three or four things, then you just think... So I was going to well, say, I'm mm. fairly sure the Ood was a late edition as well. Oh, yes, it was supposed yeah. to be a Zygon. Right. But they didn't have the money to design from scratch a Zygon costume and mm. build it, so they used what they had. The, on the case of how many things they have to do in the TARDIS, that was obviously down to how many cutaways they needed from the Doctor and Idris. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's a bit like using a quest narrative in a story. It's a bit like J.K. Rowling doing Goblet of Fire as a quest narrative. You sort of do that when you kind of run out of ideas and you mm. just want a Gwen in the Green Knight sort of, oh, and here's another challenge and here's another challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found House more creepy when his voice was coming from the planet aunt, aunt and uncle no oh right yeah 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 that was good mm-hmm. but as soon as they died then there wasn't another character for the the, the way they died was fantastic yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but where it comes in the episode i mean there is a logical reason for it to be there because house is now in the tardis mm. and so he thinks he doesn't need them anymore yeah. But the way they get dispensed with, and you've still got like 20 minutes or something to go, mm. it does feel a little bit more like the author's realised he's got nothing else that he can do with these characters because they're not needed in the plot anymore. And it's a bit like he's dispensing with them rather than House is dispensing with them. Mm. Yeah. But the moment where they die is just so lovely. Yes. You yeah. kind of forgive that. And creepy. Very yeah, creepy. yeah. Oh, did we like Aunt and Uncle, by the way? Oh, yeah. 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 Great casting. Yeah. Great casting and great character. Very Mm. odd delivery. And he, yeah, he in particular is Mm. so creepy. He's a a bit like um, the John Sim disguised character. Yeah. This kind of weird sort of Russian. Yeah. Kind of, you don't quite know where he comes from. And And he's got a really weird. In fact, they're very similar in terms of delivery. And... But he also has these really strange pauses where he just looks at the Doctor, almost as if his brain's turned off for a moment before it turns back on again. Mm-hmm. It's, there's some great moments there. Yeah. It's obviously the sort of part which actors really love mm. because they're just completely alien. So they can just do... What they like. What they like. As long yeah. as... Yeah, as long as... It's in service to the rest yeah. of the story. It's an incredibly sad story, I think. I was just going to say, we've not really <coughs> talked about the TARDIS yet, so... Well, no, I mean, for Idris at the start, there's there's no warning for her. It's, it's incredibly the sad. Fact, there's no backstory to her either. No, no. So she there was going to be, obviously. Right. Oh, there was cutscenes at the start where you did get a backstory. Okay. Oh, were there? Oh. Yeah. And some of those... That would have been quite hard for her to... Some of the cutscenes at the start turn up in Rain Gods, which is an extra on the DVD and Blu-ray. Okay. okay. Um, but that's the cutscenes with the Doctor. There was supposed to be an ex- another maybe five minutes at the start, which would be which would have been divided between a backstory for Idris and also where the Doctor is before they go into the story. I think that could have been quite hard. I mean, it was hard enough. At the beginning of the episode for it happened like that. I mean, it's kind of luckily for the viewer, you don't get to know her that well mm. before she basically gets her yeah, soul ripped out. Yeah. 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 Do do we before we talk a little bit about the TARDIS then, do the resolution I think the resolution's really good. Yes. And actually even rewatching it today for the fourth or fifth time or whatever it was, or yesterday rather, you even though I know what's coming, you still Almost until you get to the moment before mm. you think, oh yes, of course that's what's going to happen. And I think on first time, because that I, Stephen Moffat has this thing where he'll disguise something so you don't realise until the moment it happens that of course that's what was going to happen all along. And this is obviously not Stephen Moffat's story, so it doesn't happen in quite the same way. But I still think it works almost in the same way. We hear right at the start of the episode that House has to put the sort of memory banks of the TARDIS or whatever into the woman so that he can go in the TARDIS when it's undefended Mm. by having its brain in there, essentially, I Mm. guess. Mm. And so at the end, of course, you've got the brain in the control room and House is in there, and of course that's how he's defeated. But I think they disguise the way you get to that point in the episode well enough that it's still a bit of a surprise when it happens. We almost forget that Idris is TARDIS. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Because she's such a sort of... Person. Find character and likeable. And you're distracted by the fact that you know that she's dying. 
Plus, of course, that you're in an old yeah. console room, so that's yes. taken up some yeah. of your attention too. Yeah. yeah. No, it's good. Yeah. And the building, a TARDIS. And it's very it's logical. Really it's, yeah. Yeah, there's loads of little things, like, like finding the old control room and then finding out that they're stored in different places. I mean, that. Oh, there's some great lines. That sets the fan yeah. brain. Including future ones. Well, yeah, you've got 30 in, 30 in storage. Yeah. And there's only been 12 so far, so. Which is. Gives the fans something else to sort of count down to yeah. like the regeneration mm. cycle but it's one of those ideas of lovely ideas that feels like there's a whole big mm. almost like playroom well it's the same outside of that essentially the same conceit that Moffat uses to use the moment in Day of the Doctor mm. who's from the ninth Doctor so the other Doctors or she looks forward to the ninth Doctor because she's with the War Doctor mm. so she's seeing forwards in time as well as backwards and gets confused over them in the same way Idris does here yeah mm, mm. um you passed over something that, I was just gonna say that I loved the way that the resolution was logical because their resolutions aren't always logical when mm. so Idris then Saran Jones as Idris do we like absolutely yes I think her performance was suitable to the the episode she was in yeah I think if that performance had been elsewhere yeah, episode, yeah then it would have been uh, jarring and a bit mind-blowing but in that particular story yeah great. yeah really yeah. good weirdly when she's flying the tardis the the replacement tardis oh she's got some great odd yeah, moments yeah, there. yeah yeah really weird yeah but it works yes yeah mm, mm. do we like the idea of the tardis being downloaded into a human body does that work once. It could so easily not have worked. Didn't it? Didn't it work in New Adventures when the, or the uh, the Eighth Doctor Adventures? Antimony, compassion, or is that it? Compassion, compassion. Yeah, was yeah. A, was an advanced Tardis in the form of a human or a, a, oh, I didn't know a that. Female yeah. body, yeah. but not so, his Tardis, presumably. <laughs> not his Tardis, no. And that's the but, difference. Is yeah, yeah. But there aren't any original ideas. Well, yeah. Um, but yeah, I like that idea. I, mm. I again for this for this episode, it's I liked it because it told us a bit more about the TARDIS. It told us probably more about the Doctor and the TARDIS when they left Gallifrey, Gallifrey than something like Name of the Doctor. Yeah, yeah. Where, where you can actually see the Doctor yeah, and the TARDIS yeah, yeah. leaving Gallifrey, but because you sort of personified the TARDIS. It's that you discover that that relationship, that idea that the TARDIS thinks it's stealing the Doctor and the Doctor thinks he's stealing the TARDIS, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that tells you more about the history of the programme. And they kind of. It. Yeah. And although there's only, you know, a handful of lines that are about that kind of continuity, the relationship between the pair of them, the back and forth, it kind of... Because sometimes a writer will write something and you can tell that that thing wasn't quite what they had in their head and it doesn't quite... There's a lack of consistency. But here, the character has that consistency. All that oddness that that character comes up with feels like it comes out of this machine that's supposed to change mm. its appearance, mm. is supposed to know where it's going, I mean, always I, going wrong. I like to think that not all TARDISes are like this. No, absolutely. It's completely a product of their relationship. Well, and he picks this one because it's obsolete and it's mm. supposed to be going to be demolished or whatever. Yeah, it's like the Herbie of Tardises. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like what Lee was saying. It was like the one thing Lee said in the last podcast. Literally the one thing he said in the last podcast. About, about the... No, that's how he opened the podcast. But he was talking about... He opened his ass. He has got a plumber in, so... Well, yeah, that's why he's not here tonight. Yeah. Um, about how the Doctor and the TARDIS are the arc storyline for the whole series. They're the only, they're the constant. they're the only yeah. constants in the whole thing. And this this kind of adds to that. This is one of those very rare stories that actually adds to that constant. It, it touches on my, my nerd nerves as well, because it, it's kind of in the same way as one of my favourite moments in, in The Empire Strikes Back is where they plug C-3PO into the Falcon mm. and talk, and he talks to the Falcon. <laughs> and that was one of my favourite moments in that film. Right. It's the same thing. Wow. Does the fact, or does this episode, 
prove that the TARDIS is a living thing? Or maybe does it prove that the TARDIS is not a living thing? Or is it left ambiguous? It's a complex thing. I think we've been told that it's a living thing explicitly. I don't know. We've not been told explicitly it's a living thing. In fact, since this episode, we've been told explicitly that it's not. Right. When? When? Oh, last year there was no... I can't remember what it was, but I remember logging it. Oh, that's interesting. They've now said the TARDIS isn't a living thing. But that's Um, no... I mean, we've heard Smile, haven't we, where the Doctor turns around and says, well, this is now a... Well, what I mean is living in the sense of it being at least comparable with something that's yeah, actually organic. having a soul. Yes. Right. I, well, for my money, I say no. I say this episode proves the opposite because what you've done is you've downloaded data banks into a body. Yeah. And then that body represents this that data bank. data. Yeah. Yeah. But when it goes back to being data banks, because otherwise the TARDIS would talk to him all the time because mm. all you need mm. to do is plug in a loudspeaker mm. Essentially, so I, I think I I don't think I think it's fairly ambiguous, but I think the burden of proof is still on prove the TARDIS is alive rather than this is well, the proof that the TARDIS Stephen is Moffat alive. could have carried on that as a theme, couldn't you? You've got the little ghost in the machine happening at the end of the episode, haven't you? With the control, mm, yes, yes. Isn't it? Yeah. but then that's the end. Of but it. that's the end of it. But yeah. having watched, having been watching Battlestar Galactica recently and listening to podcasts about Blade Runner, all about what is what is a machine and what's a human, and that sort of blurred lines, maybe that's what... I think, I think it's pretty... It's not mentioned, but it's obvious that that is the soul going into Idris. But the question is then, what, does, what, is, a what is a soul? Is it the memories of somebody, mm. or is it something more spiritual? But I'm... And it's that ambiguity that's, that's the important thing, that you never know. But these are questions of what does the word life mean rather Mm. than what is and what is not alive. Yeah, and it's questions that you probably, the whole point is you don't answer them. Because, you know, if you ask that question, well, a battery's got power in it, it's therefore alive. Or a computer's got memory banks, therefore it's alive. And obviously a battery or a computer are tools. Yeah. So in the sense of alive in an organic and sentient and able to grow and change and reproduce and evolve. Well, the TARDIS can grow, it can change. But not in the same way as a biological entity. And it was grown. We know that it's... Oh, well, we've got the coral things now. Um, So, I don't know. I don't know. Can it reproduce? I mean, that's the... uh, that's well, Doctor um, Ten gives his half human other Doctor yeah, Ten a, a little thing so yes. he can grow his own TARDIS. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but what is life? Isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. I think I think in the episode, in this kind of fantasy based episode, I think you would call it the TARDIS's soul rather than the memory banks because that's completely appropriate to. Oh, so this, is a, this is something with a with a sentient asteroid, put it that way, with a with a voice. So the idea that a machine like the TARDIS can't be sentient as well. You've also got that little magic dust, pixie dust moment, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Where they build the new, yes, little, yeah, the, the ramshackle yeah, yeah. TARDIS. Yeah, it's yeah. not until she breathes into it, yeah, 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 that it comes to life. But I don't. But in the sense that I mean, I think mm. this the evidence here is that it's not a living. Thing in the same way as a person is. No. Not in the same way that a person is. Well, the same way that an animal is. Well, it doesn't have a chronological existence. As far as we can tell, it, it's aware of all time all at once. So it's not... All right, this is going to go <laughs> round and round in circles <laughs> for ages. Let's give it a score, shall we? Okay. Unless anybody wants to bring something up. Eight out of ten. Oh, Simon's given it an eight. Matt's given it a seven, and I'm giving it a ten. Is that how it works? <laughs> no, maybe. So I would originally given it. A, go on, I'll, I'll steam in there. I, would, I originally gave it a ten, and um, the only thing when I found rewatching it was 
as you said, the bit with Amy and Rory it feels a little like a, it's a loose limb flapping around a little bit. But then there's so many 10 out of 10 stories where there are bits that are a little bit yeah. less loose limbs because I think if there's something in it that's slightly weaker, that's balanced out by the stuff that's in it that's strong is stronger than usual, if you mm. know what I mean. Mm. But which, but I, I just felt that bit kind of... So it's, an eight. A little bit limp, so it's a nine. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, wow, Matt. I, I didn't think you'd drop from a 10, Simon. No, I do love it. I do love it, but it didn't seem as potent this time. The bits that were potent were still there, but, you know, you start noticing the... No. I'm going to give it an 8. Um, it doesn't quite draw me like some of the other episodes. And, in fact, with this rewatch, I'm kind of more looking forward to almost the Gangers <laughs> story, which I haven't seen since transmission. So there are... And let's kill Hitler. I just know what's come, and they're drawing me a bit, a bit more. It was a safe story, but it's not. wasn't very frightening, and it wasn't. It didn't have an edge to it for me. Oh God! See, I totally think it has an edge. Mm. I totally think it's unique, not mm. just for the TARDIS, but also for the way it begins mm. and the thing it throws at the Doctor. I still think it's a ten. So I'm still going to give it a 10. And it draws out the Doctor's naivety, doesn't it? Because well. like I say, I think anything that doesn't work quite as well is balanced out by things that work even more mm. so than normal. Mm. I think it's an exceptional episode. Mm. And with exceptional episodes, it can give the occasional weak moment. Um, Yeah. So you're a 10? Yeah. So that's the Doctor's wife then. And in a couple of weeks, we'll be back to talk gangers and we'll probably do something different next week. Mm. Maybe the RTD thing, maybe something else. We'll see. Until then. I was Simon. I was Matt. I was JR. And we'll speak again soon. listening to the blue box podcast and for the next 60 minutes we're going to be talking about doctor who so you don't have to hi i'm jr hi i'm matt i'm simon and i'm lee and tonight we're going to be talking about another stephen moffat time paradox story lee what did you think i hated it i couldn't understand it i'm afraid your brain's just too little isn't it it wasn't funny enough and it wasn't scary enough. I like it when things are funny. And scary. Well, look. Here's what you were, supposed, to understand from it. If Z goes back to before X is created, then the existence of Y becomes a paradox and therefore wibble. Wow, it all makes perfect sense now. I love it. I've got to pick you up on something. What's that, Matt? You explained the plot perfectly. But my academic background tells me that what you didn't take into account is how the semiotic thickness of unrelated unlicensed texts that were written decades after the fact can influence the story maker's intentions when putting the story together in the first place, and how what the story's about isn't really what the story's really about anyway, because we can all make our own judgments and they are more important than the story itself. That's what my academic education tells me. Matt, have I got to take you outside afterwards and give you a spanking? Please. How about you, Simon? Cute kittens, sweet puppies, everything is just so lovely. What can I say? You didn't find it too difficult to follow. Pretty pictures, synthetic music. Okay, let's all give it a score. Lee. Originally I was thinking 4 out of 10. But having thought about it, I've realized it was much better than that. So, 5 out of 10. What about you, Matt? It was the best thing I've ever seen. 7 out of 10. And Simon? Just lovely. 8 out of 10. You know how I love my 8 out of 10s. Why is that? It's all about the girth. Too much length can make you giddy. I see. Well I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10, because although it didn't make any sense, and it wasn't scary, and the humour was very flippant and silly, it was written by Stephen Moffat and I worship the ground he walks on. Good reasoning. 
Right, next week we're going to ignore all 26 years of the classic series, and talk about another Stephen Moffat, Time Paradox story. Because I'm in charge, and I get to choose what we do. Until then, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Simon. And I was Lee. And we'll speak again soon. Hi, this is Andy, just throwing my tuppence in. I didn't watch it, so I have no comment to make. And I would be Mark, but I'm not here.